If you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to open them up to Psalm 34. And if you don't have a Bible with you, I can't help you at this point. Hopefully you have Psalm 34 memorized so you know that I'm not taking you for a ride here. So Psalm 34. We already read a part of it this morning. I'm going to read the whole passage for us, then I'll pray, and then we will devote ourselves to the study, understanding of God's Word, that His Spirit would be gracious in doing that for us. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Father in heaven, we... We know that you are a good, gracious, kind king over the universe. We know that from all eternity past, you have given to the Son an inheritance of a people that you have known and loved even before they were created. And Lord Jesus, we know that you condescended down to this earth The scriptures say you emptied yourself, you poured yourself out, taking on human flesh, dying sacrificially in the place of those that the Father has given to you. And we know that after your death and resurrection, you ascended and you currently reign as king with all authority in heaven and on earth. And we know that you will return as judge in righteousness and in glory. And we know that the Spirit of God has given us new life and has applied the glorious work of your atonement to those given to you by the Father. 
And in this we rejoice, that in your mercy and in your kindness you have loved us and shown us grace and mercy for the sake of your name and for the glory and the praise of your name and for the good of those that you have called and you have loved and you have set aside and apart as your people. I pray as we come to this portion of your word together this morning that you, Spirit of God, would grant us wisdom and understanding to know what it is that the text means, what David had in mind when he wrote these words, and how it is that you, by your mercy, have been applying this portion of your word to your people for thousands of years. Give us insight. We pray that you would also accomplish your work in and through your word in us, that we might be convicted of sin, that we might be exhorted and encouraged to walk with you more faithfully, to love you more deeply, and that we would be like the psalmist that encountered by the goodness of your mercy, so changed by the power of your grace, that we would be your ambassadors, we would be sent out in this world to call others to bow the knee to our great King Jesus, to submit their lives to him. So do these things in and through your people, by the power of your living and active word, we ask and pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. I, I don't think it's an overstatement to say that it's been a pretty difficult three years for uh, a lot of us. I think it's been a trying time for a lot of us for a number of different reasons. And we've all experienced, and or most of us experienced, some measure of suffering, pain, loss, maybe anxiety we didn't realize we, we could experience. Maybe there's been the difficulties of seeing people we love leave or seeing people we love negatively affected, having lost their jobs, having suffered in some other ways. I think we can all say that we've tasted that, even, even your church. I mean, very recently, you guys had to work through a very difficult season and having to deal with conflict having to deal with issues of navigating relationships and, and church life and church doctrine. And I'm, I'm thankful that, that the Lord has been merciful to you and to your church. He's been gracious in granting you now a spirit of unity. And I believe indeed that there is a work that the Lord has for you moving forward. But even in that, there's been pain. And even in that, there's been difficulty. You know, just this last week, um, I'm sure most of us are aware of what happened in Nashville at Covenant Christian School. And we look at that and we can ask a number of questions. Like, God, what are you doing? What are you, what are you doing? Why so much evil? You know, Lucas and I have dear brothers in this country who are elders at churches whose little daughters go to the Christian school attached to their churches. And then we think about a pastor in Nashville whose nine-year-old daughter was taken at the school attached to their church. And what is going on? Why? Lord, what are you doing? I can't necessarily see the goal. I can't see the purpose behind this. And we're trying to navigate. Why is there so much evil in the world? Why so much wickedness? Why have we gone through what we have for the last number of years? These are not easy questions. We know this. These are not easy questions. And the answers to these questions are, may not be easy either. But this is what I know for certain without a shred of any doubt, the Lord has always been good and faithful to his people. 
since the moment he created humans in his image, he has always been faithful to his people. He has always been good to his people. And I can say anecdotally, even though it's just a little tiny piece of redemptive history, in 23 years since the Lord graciously saved me from my sin and brought me into spiritual life, he has never disappointed me. In 23 years. This is the God that we serve. So we can have perspective. We might not have the answers. We might not understand exactly what he's doing or what's going on. That's fine. The things of the Lord are for him to know. But we can take comfort in the fact that in all things and for all time, the Lord has always been faithful to his people. And now, as much as ever and maybe more than ever, the Lord is most definitely worthy to be praised and honored and thanked for his goodness and for his mercy. Uh, the psalm we're going to be in this morning has a pretty unique history. If, if you look at it, if your Bible has headings, there's a little bit of a, might be a, a heading in it, of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. And I don't know if you've ever done any research into what exactly that's all about, but let me give you a brief history of the psalm because this will, this will flavor our understanding of it. 1 Samuel 18 David is starting to amass quite a following. You have these people singing. Saul has killed thousands, but David has killed ten thousands, and the people are being drawn to David. So in 1 Samuel 20, Saul goes a little crazy and decides to seek out David that he might kill him. This in part is because the Lord has given Saul an evil spirit, an unsettling spirit. So David flees in 1 Samuel 20. And then in 1 Samuel 21, David is seeking shelter at a temple, and Saul's men approach the priest there and says, where's David? We know he's here. And then David comes out, and he begins to act like a crazy man. And the scriptures will say there's spit running down his beard. He's making markings on the door. He's acting insane so that Saul's men would say, all right, his mind is gone. He's no threat. We can leave him alone. And that's exactly what they do. So David begins to act crazy. The men say, there's no threat here. We can leave. And then David, thankful that God was merciful, writes this song. That's the history. So in David's mind, he knew that his life was on the line. If they got him and brought him, he would have been handed over to Saul and executed. And because of whatever David did, and I'm not saying that that text in this psalm is an argument for when we're facing difficulty, act crazy and start spitting and writing on the door. Like that's, I don't think we can make that application. But clearly David was led to behave the way that he did and the Lord saved him out of certain doom. So that's, that's the psalm. So Psalm 34, starting in verse 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. So with a little bit of that history in mind, David is saying, I will not stop declaring that God is worthy to be praised. I won't stop. As long as there's strength in my body and breath in my lungs, I will continue to proclaim 
that God is gracious and powerful and worthy to be praised and deserving of my entire life is an offering before him. And what I will not do, David says, is I will not boast in my ability or in my strength or in my wisdom or in my craftiness. No, my boast will be only in the Lord. Anything good is from him. Any power is from him. Any grace I experience, any success, any blessing is from him, not me. I have no claim on that, is what David is saying. My soul will make its boast in the Lord alone. Therefore, David would say, the humble person, and let me offer a very quick, simple definition of what I think humility is biblically. Humility is a person who understands who they are. Not who they think they might be an inflated self, but someone who has a real understanding of who they are. It's finite, sinful, weak, feeble, limited, fickle. I know who I am. And I also know who God is. That he's not any of those things. That he's all-powerful, all-knowing, unchanging. So I know who I am, and I know who God is, and I understand the relationship between the two. And so I see myself with a little bit more sober judgment in light of who I am and in light of who God is that he hasn't destroyed me yet. That's humility. And so David is saying in light of the fact that the Lord is to be praised, that there's no boast to be had in self but the Lord alone, the one who is humble, the one who sees themselves honestly and the Lord honestly will hear what David is saying. The one who understands who they are and who God is are going to hear these words from David and what? They'll be glad. They'll be glad. And what will they do? They will join David in what? Magnifying the Lord. Making him bigger. Seeing more of him and less of self. The one who understands who they are and who God is. This invitation, by the way, like David, the, the, the whole, one of the threads through this psalm is that David isn't just saying God's great, but there's an invitation, and the invitation is you also need to see that he's great and hear that he's great. You need to praise him for his greatness. You need to worship him. David is calling anyone who would hear, anyone who's humble, who understands who they are, who understands who God is, David is saying, join me, magnify the Lord together. Let's worship him Together, let's praise him together. This is an invitation for God's elect to magnify the Lord. Now, here's a question. Who is God and what has God done that warrants this kind of worship? And not just this kind of worship individually, but that the person would say, you, every, we need to do this together. We need to join together. Stop what you're doing. Stop worshiping whatever you're worshiping. We must worship the Lord. He alone is worthy to be praised. Who is God and what has he done that warrants such worship, such total adoration? Well, verse 4. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all of my fears. I was afraid, legitimately afraid, worried, gripped with a real fear a real anxiety, circumstances were difficult, dire, maybe my life was on the line, the psalmist is saying. Anxious in my soul, what did I do? I went to God. I cried out to Him. 
I pled with him to be merciful, to show me grace, to, to extend his mighty hand and do what only God does. And what did the Lord do? Well, here the psalmist is saying the situation didn't change. He doesn't say, I sought the Lord and he made everything better. I sought the Lord and he delivered me out of all of my fears. He delivered me out of my fears. So what did the Lord do? What only the Lord can do. He granted me peace. Perspective. A deep joy that cannot be shaken by life circumstances. I cry out to him for help. And the first thing that he does is he changes my soul so that the fear doesn't seem so large anymore. It doesn't seem to be as crushing as it was, knowing that the Lord is with me, that he hears and that he answers. Verse 5, those who look to him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. The idea of looking to the Lord isn't just a glance, oh, there he is, but looking to the Lord. When you walk, ideally, you're looking where you're walking. Looking to implies direction, movement. Those who look to the Lord are those whose eyes are fixed on him, who are pursuing him, following him, moving toward him in obedience. And what does the scripture say? They shine. Their faces are radiant. As opposed to what? As opposed to the rest of the world. In darkness and in sin. There's not a literal sense that those who look to the Lord have their faces glow like Moses when he came down from the mountain. But those who look to the Lord, in them is a joy, in them is a peace, so that they shine in the midst of a world that what? Doesn't trust the Lord. That is dead in their sin, that is dark, that is hopeless, that is lost. They are radiant. And regardless of what others say, regardless of what everyone, anyone else would do to them or about them or circumstances, what do we know? This person who pursues God will not be ashamed. This person who pursues God won't find themselves saying, I kind of, I shouldn't really, some, someone would say, oh, you're, you're so silly for that God thing. Oh, I'm kind of, a, no, 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 no. Though the one who's looking to the Lord, who is pursuing him, it doesn't matter what happens. It doesn't matter what anyone says. They will not be put to shame. They will not be ashamed. Verse 6. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. This poor man, David is saying, speaking in the third person. This poor man, this broken man, this sinful man, this hurting man, this anxious finite, limited, short-sighted human being. This man cried out to the Lord. This man pleaded with God, help me, save me, do something, Lord. Show yourself powerful and mighty were the cries of this poor man. And God heard him, and God answered him, and God rescued him. Now, at this point in David's life, he cries out to the Lord, and the Lord indeed is merciful to save him from this particular situation. But he might not always. And even if David's cries to the Lord were met with an answer which was, no, this is what I have for you to suffer. 
I'm pretty sure David would have taken the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego posture. Even if he doesn't, he still hears me, he's still gracious, and even if he doesn't answer this particular cry, I know that there is hope and joy even beyond this life. But for David, he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord heard him and saved him. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. The angel of the Lord is a figure that we will see popping up in the Old Testament. There are many who believe that the angel of the Lord is a manifestation of the pre-incarnate Son, the eternal Word of God. This is why when people see the angel of the Lord, they, they fall to the ground assuming they're going to die, saying we've seen God's face and we've lived. That could be true. This could be the Son of God pre-incarnation. Or it could simply be an angel, a messenger, the one sent from the Lord to accomplish his work. Either way, the one who seeks after the Lord, the one who fears the Lord, has the angel of the Lord present with those around. What does this mean? What does this all mean? This idea of fearing the Lord. Right? The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. What is the fear of the Lord? By the way, as we go through the scriptures, as we're reading periodically, we'll come to certain words or verses, and I think we have a, a habit, an unfortunate habit, of either assuming the meaning of something, or I would just kind of gloss through it. Oh yeah, the fear of the Lord, I know what that means. But what does the fear of the Lord actually mean? Does it mean to be afraid? Because David is saying, he's delivered me out of all my fears. Right? This poor man cried and he saves me from all my fears, but not, but not this one. What is the fear of the Lord? Let me offer an illustration to help solidify this idea. The fear of the Lord is this. I'm sure we've all seen videos, or I'm sure some of us, maybe in our hobby farms or bigger farms, if you sneak up behind a goat and you yell at it really loud, the goat will like freeze and just fall over, right? It'll just be like a stone. It'll fall over and then you'll have a laugh Right, you'll film it on your phone, you'll put it on Facebook, like it's amazing, right? Okay. You wouldn't do that to a lion. You wouldn't sneak up behind a lion and go, bah, because then you're dead, right? The fear of the Lord is this. There is a way that you operate around one who is more powerful than you are, knowing that at any moment... A single swipe, your life is over. This is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is that when we talk to, speak of, engage with, operate around the Lord, we don't do so in a flippant manner. We don't treat the Lord like he's just our buddy. Like he's just my bro, he's another friend, we're going out for coffee. The Lord is not one to be trifled with. This is the king of the universe. He speaks, the universe comes into being. Every time lightning strikes, he commands it to do so. And lightning, which if it strikes a person or a tree or a house, could destroy it. For the Lord, it's no effort. God doesn't have to work hard to make lightning strike. He doesn't have to work hard to send floods. He is powerful. And he's not one that we just dance around like it's no big deal. This is the fear of the Lord a reverence and awe that understands who he is and who we are. 
and that we're not just to mess around with God like he's some other person. So for the one who fears the Lord, who understands who he is and who we are, we understand that there's a way that the Lord is graciously present around, protecting in some sense. It's no wonder that the psalmist then writes these words. Right? This poor man cried, he heard me. He delivered me. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, who know who they are, who know who God is. Verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. There's the invitation. Taste and see that the Lord is good. For those of us who have kids, you know when you introduce a new food and, uh, and your kid's like, oh, that, I don't know that, that's gross, that's, it's, it smells funny, it looks funny, right? Unless you kind of, you know, bring out the mallet and say, you better eat that food or it's coming down. Normally what you say is something like this, just try it. No, just, just try, you'll see it's good. That you're, being, you're being silly, just try it. Oh, it looks, I know it looks weird, but just try it. It's delicious, you're going to like it. I promise you're going to like it. And then they push and they push, and then, I don't know about your kids, but some children will try it, and then they'll kind of pretend like they don't like it, even though they really do, like, oh, it's not that good, but you can see they love it. This, it's an invitation. You're, there's this sense of you're pleading. What, what, what are you saying to your kids? I know it's good, but you don't know it's good. I'm telling you it's good. If you would just get over yourself, your stubbornness, your pride, your whatever, just... If you try it, you'll know that it's good. And this is the invitation that David is extending to those who would hear these words. The Lord is good. I know he's good. He has shown himself to be good. Taste and see that he's good. The Lord is good. You have to know this God that I know. You have to bow your knee to this king. You're bowing to something, yourself, an ideology. You're, everyone's bowing the knee to something. David is saying, you need to bow to the Lord. You need to trust him. You need to, I know him. He has delivered me. He, I cried out to him and he heard me. He has been gracious to me. You need to know and see that he is good, that the Lord is good. And this person who does taste and, and then sees that the Lord is good. Such a person is truly blessed. Such a person is truly blessed. Verse 9. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. There's that word again. Fear the Lord. Taste and see that he's good. But not taste and see like I can pop in like it's a drive through Yes, taste and see that the Lord is good. But that still means we understand who He is and who we are. There's a right fear of the Lord. And those who fear Him find what? That the Lord gives them everything they need. Everything they need. This is another portion, if I might say, that we just kind of gloss over. Yeah, fear the Lord. I know what that means. Yeah, yeah, God gives me whatever I need. I'm sure you've said this or heard someone say this the Lord will give you everything you need. And that's true. But it needs to be qualified. And the qualification is actually given for us in the Scriptures. 
So, in the New Testament, when Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. For what purpose? To seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Not so that you can just sit back on a beach and enjoy all your abundance, but so that you can continue to seek first the Lord and his righteousness. God will give you what you need to do what? Whatever he has commanded you to do. Whatever he has given you to do, he will give you what you need to do that. Paul writes to the Philippians while he's in prison and says, and I am certain that the Lord will meet all of your needs. Paul was in prison saying, I'm certain the Lord will meet all of my needs. In prison, which means what? At that moment in time, did Paul need the comfort of a house? No. Did Paul need a real padded bank account and savings account? No. What did Paul need? Whatever minor provisions were there for him to live. The Lord will give you everything you need to do what he has commanded you to do. He might give you more. He'll never give you less to do what he has commanded you to do. In that we can be certain that the Lord will meet the needs of his people. Verse 10. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Young lions, powerful, energetic, top of the food chain. I mean, these are prime apex predators. Even they don't have everything they need. Even they eventually get old and tired and weaker and die. But those who pursue God, again, he generously provides us with everything we need to what? To do what he has commanded us to do. To do what he has commanded us to do. So how do we respond to this gracious, merciful God who gives us all that we need, who provides what is needed to obey him, to pursue him? What's the response? Verse 11 is the response. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The answer, the response from the person who has tasted and seen that the Lord is good, who understands that he provides all that is needed, who understands that in our weakness we cry out, he hears us, he answers us, is to say what? You need to hear about this God. God, let me, let me show you who he is and what he's done for me. Let me tell you about his goodness. Now, the, the children here, it could be within the context of one's own household, that there is a reason why we tell our children Love, serve, bow, submit, trust in Christ because he's good, because he is God. But this children here is a broad sense. David's not writing this just to his children. This is a broad sense, the same way that Jesus refers to his disciples as children. Now that we have responded to the invitation to taste and see that the Lord is good, what do we do? We extend that invitation out. You need to know that God is good. You need to know that he cares for those who fear him, who love him, that he indeed is gracious to them and powerful to them. 
You need to taste and see that He is good and that He provides. This is the invitation we extend out. And what is tied to that invitation? He doesn't just say, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, so just pray this prayer and you're in. No, no, no. You also have to turn from your sin. Repent from your sin. Turn from the wrath that is coming for the enemies of God. You can't just say, God's my buddy, buddy. He'll forgive my sin and everything's great. Repent and believe. So we call people. Come, let me tell you about who the Lord is and what he's done. His kindness, his grace, his mercy. But you must turn from your sin. You must forsake your, your sinful life. You must trust in the Lord alone. Because there is a just condemnation for those who die in rebellion to God. So yes, he's kind. Yes, he's good to those who fear him. To those who've been called by him. You must turn from your sin and follow him. Verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. This is, the scriptures have to remind us, though we forget, that God sees. God, do you know what's going on? Yes, he does. Do you, yes, do you hear? Yes. What about the stuff that doesn't come out of my mouth? What about those internal, painful cries of fear and anxiety and worry? Does he hear? Yes, he hears those. He knows. He sees. He hears. And the righteous are not the ones who are sinless. The righteous are those saved by God, now having attained a righteousness that is not their own. The Lord hears them. The Lord responds to them, only those who have turned from their sin and trusted the Lord. When the wicked cries out, when the person who hates God would say, oh, fine, whatever, you know, God help me. Um, God's not listening. God is not paying attention and responding. Verse 16. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. This is why repentance is so vital. This is why the psalmist now turns to not just tasting and seeing that he's good, but turning from your sin. Those who do evil, the wicked, the unsaved, non-believers, the Lord isn't just neutral. He is against them. He's not just apathetic. He is against those who hate him. There is a holy anger against his enemies, storing up wrath for them, ready to pour out the fullness of his wrath upon them, to judge them fully and finally someday. The Lord is against the wicked. He will destroy them someday. And what? They'll be forgotten. They'll be forgotten. It seems like a great enemy now. And then, in 200 years, the wicked will be forgotten. Verse 17. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. If you are not following, not pursuing, not obeying God, when you cry out, he's not listening. He doesn't hear. This is a privilege allocated to God's elect alone. Only they have been given the privilege of being able to cry out to the Lord, and he hears them. Those who have bowed the knee to King Jesus, when we plead with him to help us in our troubles, he hears. And he responds, 
in a way that accords with his good pleasure, his will, and his timing. Not our own. Not our own. He will deliver. There is salvation from trouble. It might not be in this life, but we know for certain that some point, someday, there will be no more troubles. There will be no more suffering for God's people. He will deliver us. Verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Notice here, this is uncomfortable stuff. The brokenhearted here is not the brokenhearted in general, okay? In context, what we've been talking about are those who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, who have trusted Him, who have followed Him. So when His people are brokenhearted, the Lord is near to them. But the brokenhearted in general, the godless brokenhearted, the one who hate Him, who are brokenhearted, He's not near to them. Listening, consoling. That sounds really, I don't like that, Andrew. That's icky. Okay, this is what the Word says. That this brokenhearted person is the one who has been united to Him in faith. This one, the Lord hears. The Lord is close to them. When our spirits are crushed, when we are broken, anxious, worried, spent, just done. We're just done. Just done. The Lord is close to His people when they are brokenhearted. His presence is with us. He helps us. Doesn't mean that everything's going to be comfortable. Does not mean everything's going to be easy. But it does mean that He is with us. Verse 19. This is a dreadful verse, by the way. This is a true and really awful verse, but we believe it to be so, and we know that this comes after an unpacking of the goodness and the grace of our Lord. Verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of all of them. It is a true, demonstrable, and awful reality. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Many are the afflictions of those who love the Lord. Those who love the Lord experience suffering, pain, and evil. There is no shortage of difficulties for His people. Any kind of theology or doctrine, any kind of gospel that would teach that following Christ alleviates suffering, alleviates affliction, makes it easier and more comfortable and more wealthy, is godless and evil and satanic. Following Christ does not necessarily mean it's going to be easy and comfortable and pain-free. We know this because our Savior Himself marked out the path of suffering and all of His disciples, they all died really, really badly. And they suffered. And his church suffered for 300 years. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But this is what we know. This is the truth that the psalmist has already unpacked for us that we know to be the case, that I know to be the case, that the Lord is with us. He's working it for our good. He's accomplishing his good and perfect will. He will get us through it. And someday, He will take us home to be with Him. 
This is what we know to be true. Then there will be no more afflictions. Then there will be no more pain, no more suffering. For now God gives us his very presence to be with us, to guide us, to sustain us, to encourage us, to embolden us, giving us everything we need. He is with us. Discipleship isn't easy. Following the Lord is not easy. And it's not pain-free. But he's worth it. He's worth it. And he does not disappoint. He does not disappoint. And he's enough. He's enough for us. Verse 20. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. So David, again, is applying this to himself, that quite literally the soldiers were there to kill me. And the Lord graciously prevented that from happening. Now the New Testament writers understand that this is pointing forward to Christ. The apostles quote this verse in reference to Jesus, who at his crucifixion died quite quickly, so when the soldiers came by to break his leg so that he would die faster, he was already dead. And then the writers of the New Testament say, and thus to fulfill the scriptures, not one of his bones was broken, and then they quote Psalm 34. So they understood that this is pointing forward to Christ. Now, I would make the argument that not just this verse, the whole Psalm, and really all the Old Testament is pointing forward to Christ. Jesus says as much, the apostles say as much, and we'll see, we'll see what I mean by that in just a little bit. But this is, this, is, this is pointing forward to him. Verse 21. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. So this is the bad news for those who hate God. They're also not exempt from affliction. So many are the afflictions of the righteous, and many are the afflictions of the wicked. They don't just get off scot-free. The difference is, when they die their affliction and condemnation goes on into all eternity. Whereas for God's people, pain, suffering, gone. So this is a double condemnation for those who hate God. They suffer now, and they suffer later. Whereas we suffer now, but by God's grace, when either Christ returns or he brings us home to be with him, suffering's over. How foolish then, to try to make this life as good as possible, as comfortable as possible, in rejecting God, only to face an eternity of just wrath for sins. This is the lot of the wicked. Verse 22. The Lord redeems the life of His servants. None of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. And there's the difference. God redeems His people. The wicked have affliction and they die and they are condemned. But those who are in the Lord, what, what does Paul say? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who are united to God in faith, those who are His people, who have tasted, who have seen that He is good, who trust Him, who love Him, who know that He provides, despite afflictions, despite suffering, He is with us, those people are no longer under his condemnation. The wrath of God has passed over them because of the blood of Christ. Our sins condemn us. We need a redeemer. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
turning from our sin and pursuing him, we are saved. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 6. I'm going to offer right now that I believe that what we're about to see here from the words of our Lord in mind has what we've just unpacked in Psalm 38. That's my, that's my argument. Let's look at it together. John chapter 6, starting in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day." Everyone who looks, who sees, whose face is set toward Christ and believes, such a person will receive tremendous blessing. Chief among them is eternal life and not being cast out from the presence of God. Those who see him. Go down to verse 47. So they grumble, they're like, oh, but we know who you are, you're a carpenter's son. They, so the, all they do is evidence the fact that they don't actually believe him. Jesus responds, verse 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I'm the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. What is Jesus saying here? Taste and see that I am God. Taste and see. The one who tastes this, I'm the living bread, the one who tastes, the one who sees will have what? Eternal life. Will have what? the presence of Christ with them, forgiveness of sins. This is an invitation. Now, we know, we're getting a little theological, we know that ultimately it is only the elect of God that respond to the grace of God. It's only the elect of God that hear the call of Christ through the gospel. But look at this invitation from Jesus. I am the bread of life. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. Taste I am the bread that's come down from heaven. Whoever looks upon the sun will be saved. See, taste, and see that he is God, that he is good. And this plea here, this invitation, is not just one that says, I believe you're God, you're good, okay, let's just get on with it. But the call here is a call to submit one's life to Christ, to follow him, to pursue him, to trust him, and what? You will be saved. You'll be satisfied. You will find life and will be kept by him, delivered by his power into eternity someday. 
provided with everything we need to do what he's commanded us to do. I don't, uh, I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know your soul's condition. I don't know what your day's been like. I don't know what your week has been like. I don't know what your year has been like. I don't know what your life has been like by and large. I, I can't peer into everyone's soul and start to take a, kind of write a brief synopsis of what's going on. I don't know. Like everyone, so I know how church works, that even if we're an utter mess, we come here and we, like everything's fine. No, no, it's fine. We had this all, like you might, we had this awful fight on the way to church, and I'm ready to, and then, and the week has been terrible, but hey, everything's fine. So like, I know that guaranteed some of you are like just completely lying to everyone else here this morning. I know that this is the case, that some of you right now are like David has been writing in Psalm 34. Now, I don't know that. You know that. The Lord knows that. But some of you might be brokenhearted, weary, anxious, suffering, kind of just barely holding it together, like it's right up to here. You know what I'm talking about. It's just right up here, and all it would take would be one thing. Someone's got to say one thing, or something's got to happen, and it's over. It's, it's going to spill out in anger or rage. You're like right up here, and yet you're doing your best to push it down to have a nice face on Sunday morning. That might be some of you. That might be some of you. So this is the plea. This is my invitation, which is the Lord's invitation. If you don't know Christ, if you are in the midst of affliction, if you have not yet bowed the knee to King Jesus, turn from your sin, trust in Christ alone, because the truth is, the affliction we all face is temporary, but the affliction that the wicked will face is eternal. The call to believe the gospel is not a call that, to have a wonderful, cozy life because God loves you and thinks you're just awesome. Jesus himself says, turn from the wrath that is coming. Turn from your sin. I don't care what you've said to yourself or others, oh yeah, I, with my mouth I profess. You know you know your soul's condition. The Lord knows your soul's condition. Turn to him in faith. Turn from your sin. Stop trusting yourself, your strength, your ability, your good works. You're not going to work your way into heaven. That's a lie. You'll be extremely shocked someday if you die in that state. Trust in Christ alone. Not only does he provide salvation and payment for sins, but he provides indeed what the soul is looking for in joy, in peace. This is found in Christ alone. In Christ alone. Now, if you are in Christ and you're in a season of particularly difficult sorrow, loss, pain, grief, again, I don't know because we're all probably hiding it really, really well, right? No one else knows, and we're just, I got to look it on Sunday. But if you are in Christ, if you are one of His, loving Him, following Him, and it is, it is a dark season of the soul for you. from a follower of Jesus who knows that, that pain, who knows the deep sorrow, who knows what it means on the outside, like David, is, like, like David would say, I just broken, poor, tired, weary, empty, and the outside everything's good. From someone who knows that, who knows the Lord, the truth is that we cry out to him, he answers. He hears us. I just want to close off by reading 
something. Um, this is from Spurgeon's Morning and Evening Devotional. This is from January 16th. I read this, obviously, on January 16th, and uh, it kind of hit me like a train. So I'm going to try not to cry as I read this, okay? I'm going to try to hold it together. All morning I've been thinking, well, what point am I going to lose it? So, and again, this is for, this is for God's people for all time. This isn't just a when, I'm, when I'm at the end of my rope. Always and in all circumstances, the goodness and the grace of our Lord is available to us through the Spirit of God because of the work of Christ. But particularly if you are in Christ and you are in that season of soul-wrenched pain, fear, anxiety, and you're trying your best to make it look good on the outside, but the inside you know that you are brokenhearted. This morning, listen to the Lord Jesus speak. This is taken from Isaiah 41, 14. I will help you. It is a small thing for me, your God, to help you. Consider what I've already done. What? Not help you? I bought you with my blood. What? Not help you? I died for you. Since I have done the greater... Will I not do less? Before the world began, I chose you. I made a covenant for you. I laid aside my glory and became a man for you. I gave my life for you. Since I did all this, then I will surely help you now. In helping you, I am giving you what has already been purchased. If you needed a thousand times as much help, I would give it. Your requests are nothing compared with what I'm willing to give. You need much, but it is nothing for me to grant your needs. Help you? Fear not. I will help you. And this is Spurgeon's conclusion and application. Is this not enough? Do you need more strength than the the omnipotence of the United Trinity? Do you need more wisdom than exists in the Father? Do you need more love than is displayed in the Son? Do you need more power than is manifest in the Spirit? Bring your empty pitcher. This well will fill it easily. Hurry. Gather your wants, your emptiness, your woes, your needs, and bring them here. See This river of God is full to meet your needs. What else do you need? Oh, my soul, go forward in his strength. The eternal God is your helper. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, your word tells us that the Spirit of God intercedes on our behalf with groanings that cannot be expressed by words. And we know that in our weakness, in our pain, in our sorrow, in our suffering, it's difficult for us to even put together the words to pray to make sense of of what's going on. And yet we know that because you have sealed us with your Spirit, you've saved us as your own, that the Spirit of God intercedes on our behalf and prays for the things that we actually need 
the grace and the mercy and the love and the joy and the peace that are actually needed. Jesus, we know that you, the Scriptures tell us, before the throne of God, always make intercession intercession for your people. You are a kind God. You are a good, gracious, and loving God. You have done everything for us. You have created us. You've given us life and breath. You've given us your Son. You've given us your Spirit. You've given us the hope for eternal life. You've given us your presence to daily lead us and guide us. You've given us your Word. You've given us the church. You've given us all of these gifts. And David's, David can say, if I were to think about them and count them, it's too much for me. More than the sand in the seashore to consider the goodness of God. This is who you are. Help us. Help us in our sorrow and in our weakness to remember that you are good, to remember that you provide, that you can be trusted, that you will not disappoint us. Help us indeed to continually live lives of tasting and seeing that you are good, finding refuge in you, hope in you, Help us by your Spirit's power to submit ourselves daily to feast upon your word, to cry out to you in prayer, to gather with the people that you have brought around us for our good and for our joy and for our sanctification, to avail ourselves of all of the means of grace you've given, that we might declare like David did to others, come and see, let me tell you about the fear of the Lord. Let me declare to you the goodness of God that you might also taste and see that he is good. Accomplish this work in and through us that we would be your ambassadors, your witnesses in a world that is blind and starving, blind and starving, that needs to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. That by your grace would be, we would be involved in the process of you redeeming your elect as we invite them to taste and see that you are good. Lord Jesus, we love you because you have first loved us. And we offer our lives to you in thanksgiving because you offered your life for us and for our sins. We ask and pray all of this in your name, Jesus. Amen.